0: It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race bankroll by Unibet Poker. I'm David Lappin. I'm here with budding poker author Dara O'Carney, whose book Poker Satellite Strategy is available to pre-order on Amazon. Just go to his website, Doking Around in Cyberspace, subscribe to his newsletter, and all the info is there. This week we are joined by one of the best players in the game, Canadian GPI number one, Chrissy Bicknell. We're also joined by one of the best players in Scotland, David Doherty. Diva Byrne joins Dara and I to look at that fold by Thai juan Nguyen. Dara Davey is at the news desk. But first, Last Week in Poker was all about the PSPC in the Bahamas, an event that pitted hundreds of lucky amateurs against the absolute best in the world in a 25k buy in with 5 million for first. Now, in a rather extreme way, that brings up the subject of what do you do if you find yourself in a tournament where you're out of your depth? Well, hopefully you're not dead money. The beauty of the game of poker is that everyone has a chance, even against the absolute best. It is, however, a daunting proposition to play a buy-in that's higher than that with which you are comfortable. To unpack this, we welcome back to the show mindset coach and author of The Mental Game of Poker, Jared Tendler. Unfortunately, I was mid-air when this was recorded, so Dara went one-to-one with Jared. Enjoy.
1: I'm here with Jared Tender, the author of The Mental Game. Jared's been a guest on the show twice already, I believe. Welcome back, Jared.
2: Hey, thanks, sir. Good to be here.
1: I'll tell you the reason we decided to get you back again at the moment, uh, there's a 25K going on in the Bahamas, and it's pretty unusual for 25K in that there's a lot of recreational players basically being put into the event with these platinum passes. Normally, 25 you will have some amateurs or whatever you want to call them, but they'll typically be fairly rich amateurs who either can afford the 25K or at least can afford a satellite for it. But in this case, you literally have guys who play £5, £10 tournaments. Would you have any particular advice for them? Because I actually know a few of these guys, and they were really excited at the start, and then... Really apprehensive as the day came, thinking about playing for that kind of stakes against the best players in the world.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it's not uncommon. I mean, you're playing against some of the best players in the world. And this is like one of the beautiful things about poker, you know, that in an event like this, people with such large skill differentials can actually compete against each other. Like, I certainly tried, but, you know, the everyday golfer is not going to be out there playing in the US Open or the British Open. So, this is the fun thing about poker. Now, the key, in my mind, is to really just make sure that you adopt a good mentality for it. On the one hand, you could convince yourself that it is just a fun free roll; that your expectations are zero. You go, you have fun, you enjoy yourself. Whatever happens, happens. You know, you get a chance to have maybe a rounder's kind of moment where you, uh, you know, you bluff one of the better players off a of hand, and it becomes a story. and And that's what it is. It's just that you make money, you make money. You don't. You never would have been there in the first place. So just go enjoy yourself. Probably some like the guys you're talking about take poker seriously. It may not be their profession, but it's certainly something that they care about. And so getting players like that to adopt that is tough because now, you know, there's an opportunity to make some life changing money or at least give themselves an opportunity to really boost themselves up or play against better players, learn from them you know, the key in my mind from that point is to do a few things. You still need to set some realistic goals for what you can actually attain from playing in it. So quite literally you say, right, okay, well, I'm going to play against these better players. I'm going to do the best that I can, but I'm not going to out-level myself, right? You you can't get into the leveling game with these guys because they know too much, right? Mm. If you try to play up to their level, you're actually going to play a lot worse. And recreational players, amateur players, like they can be tricky for really good pros, because sometimes they get too used to and accustomed to playing against other players that have sort of similar styles. And so if your style is different, it may take them a few orbits uh, or longer to really kind of get a sense of what you're doing and how to respond. So that's part A. Part B is getting the opportunity to sort of see how they play, may kind of rub off, you may learn some things and being up close is different than, you know, watching from afar. It's a different perspective. So there's that. And so again, set some goals from a qualitative standpoint, from a learning standpoint that yes, there's something you're gonna get out of it, but still at the end of the day, making money is not the primary mechanism because for all intents and purposes, you're probably a losing player in the event. So you need to get lucky to win. So hope for some luck. The last thing I would say is it's really important. Sometimes, especially when you see players on TV, you follow them on Twitter, you are engaging with them, they sort of start to create this like mythology to them. And in that mythology, they have no weaknesses. They don't get unlucky. They will never make mistakes. And the reality is that they're human like everybody else. And if you can sort of strip them down and see them as having weaknesses, having fallibility, then it's going to reduce a little bit of pressure on your part because you're not going to try to rise to that standard, but realize like, oh, you know, these guys could make a mistake. Maybe I could be the one that could force it on them. And so, you know, you kind of use that, that intensity use that goal as a constant thing to kind of focus you like kind of within the pressure that you're experiencing.
1: Yeah, some very interesting points there. A few amateurs did ask me for advice going into the event. I think they were primarily looking for sort of technical advice, but I felt, what can they learn at this stage that's going to make that much of a difference? i <laughs> give given some pointers in that area, but it's interesting you said about the free roll thing. That's one thing I actually thought about. At the end of the day, just have fun. It's a free roll, and you can't have too high expectations for any one tournament anyway. Okay, so one thing which occurred to me was that uh, a lot of the, the recreational players that I know, they're actually approaching it with a fairly positive carefree that sort of free roll attitude as you described there I think for sort of what I would describe mid-stake regs some of whom have like you know they won the big 11 or something and part of it was the platinum pass and they now find themselves playing it do you think the issue is slightly different for them because you know these guys maybe play 10 or 20,000 tournaments a year but they grind primarily online they grind low to mid stakes 25k is huge in their world it might be their yearly expectation in some ways I feel it's kind of more difficult for these guys because they have a clearer sense of where they are in the hierarchy of poker that maybe they're more likely to be a little bit starstruck by the elite players who, who typically play 25k's would you have any
2: different advice to give those guys it's still somewhat similar because at the end of the day like even if they're making 50k a year 100k a year i mean you know 25k is a very big chunk so some of them are going kind to of go into it with some fantasies some wishes that they can at least cash but if not, like make a deep run and make potentially life-changing money. And it's really important to keep those wishes from taking on a life of their own. And here's the key distinction. It's fine to have a few minutes where you think about it and enjoy it and kind of do the what ifs and kind of joke around with your mates. But if there really starts to become emotion to it and you're dreaming about it the night before or the weeks before, and it really starts to build up, all that is going to do is add pressure to you and it's gonna take away from your ability to actually play well, because now there's this extra sort of mentality Towards winning, which you know is not really what you're doing on a day-to-day basis when you're playing anyway. Right? Obviously, you want to win. You want to make deep runs, but your focus has to be on the quality of your play. And so, the more you kind of get caught up in that fantasy, the more likely you are to play worse. And at the end of the day, thinking about it is not going to help any. It's not going to, you know, increase your motivation to play better. It basically just becomes, for lack of a better term, just like mental masturbation. I mean, you're just basically making yourself feel good in a very artificial way that's just not real.
1: That's really uh, good advice. Okay, so on to another topic. One thing we have in common is we've both written books with Barry Carter. How is the
2: experience of writing with Barry for you? It's a pretty poor distinction, isn't it? That's uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's how, a how it? club, I prefer to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. How is the writing book with Barry? I mean, you know, on the one hand, he's English and he's a dog, and so much of our work was done while he's uh, out walking the dog. But no, I mean... He, Barry is an inquisitive guy and he's motivated and passionate about poker. So helping me to like kind of take what I understand and like kind of pour it through the sort of lens of poker was really helpful. He, he was good at stopping me from kind of going too deep into rabbit holes and mm. asking like, like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, <laughs> or, or no, like poker players are not really going to get this and pushing the right spots. And he was a very helpful partner in the process. Yeah, I, I think to a large measure, part of the book's success is due to him.
1: Yeah, you guys basically wrote pretty much the two definitive books on the air, The Mental Game of Poker 1 and 2. Our book is more of a pure poker strategy book, but we were very lucky to get you to contribute because one thing that came up in my chats with Barry was that I thought that this sort of the mental game of satellites was slightly different from the mental game of normal tournaments in the sense that the bubble is such a big deal. In a normal tournament, you know, it's a much more gradual thing, the bubble it's typically just somewhere between one and a half and two buy-ins and then the prizes gradually arise. So busting at any point of the tournament, while while, while painful, is not as painful as actually busting in a in a satellite where maybe there are 50 prizes of equal value, and you're the unlucky number 51st who has to uh-huh. walk away with nothing. And that actually creates huge types of stress and pressure. And I identified two different types of, let's say, bad mental reaction that you can have. One mm-hmm. is where players just kind of want the thing to be over and they sort of make an unnecessary move because they can't deal with the tension. What's your
2: advice for players like that? So I remember we talked about this in the book a while ago. So my advice is different from then. Than- <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe there's still time. Maybe there's still time to add it. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, that kind of a like tension-busting decision is one that happens for players around mistakes too. So a player like that very likely. Like that's not the only scenario where they're making decisions to take care of tension. Like it's very likely that they're doing that in smaller ways in lots of other situations too, where they're put to a test with a big decision earlier in the event. They are playing against a better player. They don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to make timing, tell mistakes that they're going to play faster. Like it may sound a little bit odd, but the first thing that, that you want to do or, or that kind of a player wants to do is to actually look for all of the other situations where you are making decisions faster or more unusually based on trying to remove tension, and then being able to work on them in those smaller spaces automatically actually trains you to be able to handle the bigger one. You know, you want to you want to kind of inch up on this, not have to kind of jump over something that's uh, that's too big of a hurdle. But if that's not the case and really is just, no, you know, it's just the pure money uh, and the money and the opportunity is just too big, then you kind of have to understand what is really kind of the heart of the fear, right? Like the money represents things. Money probably represents more than just the actual value of it. It's probably more around a sense of accomplishment, a sense of failure. So you kind of have to break into it and understand what is flawed that is then producing that excessive amounts of fear. That logic then gets used as you get closer to the bubble. Like you can't start managing it when there's only 51 people left. You know, you really ought to start dealing with it, you know, when there's 60 and kind of ramping it up when you get down to 58 and 55 and maybe taking a small break and really kind of motivating yourself and giving yourself the pep talk to just keep grinding on making the best decisions you can, using the same advice I gave earlier of if you do that and you still bust out, like you're going to feel better. It's still going to suck, but you'll feel better knowing that you played well versus beat yourself.
1: Hmm. Yeah, uh, Barry put up a joke cover yesterday with, on Twitter of our book, which I think some people thought might be serious, but I can assure you isn't. And that, that, that suggested that the name of our book was Fold Everything, which it's generally true that in satellites, you should play a lot tighter, particularly in your bubbles. And you often do end up folding almost everything. But this is the other, I guess, contrary mistake that players can make approaching a bubble, which is that they essentially lock up too early and they know they're supposed to play tight, but they just take it to an absolute ridiculous extreme and they're afraid to put a chip in the pot and they end up blinding out of the tournament essentially what kind of advice would you have for these guys
2: sack up no. Um, no, I mean, <laughs> like, a lot of times players are just sort of failing to calculate the risk here right like you know the risk of not acting not just in that sense but in a larger sense too right the risk of not doing something sometimes is actually greater than the risk of taking a chance and trying to make something happen if you sit on the sidelines too long like opportunity disappears and so while you might risk embarrassment failure money, the long-term cost of inaction, of not actually making those decisions, of not progressing yourself, of not giving yourself those opportunities and gaining the experience doing that sometimes is is greater than actually taking the chance. So that's one thing to consider. Uh, The other thing is, again, similar deal. Like what is really kind of paralyzing you in that situation? Is it the risk of looking stupid, embarrassing yourself, making Mm -hmm. mistakes, failing? Like Again, it's not necessarily just that you're folding or playing too passive. It's the mental or emotional thing that is paralyzing you that you really need to understand and fix
1: very good well thanks a lot jared it's always a real pleasure to chat to you You, you've joined a very select brand of people we've had on the show three times now um, and we hope to run into you in vegas if not before and maybe you become the first guest to be on four times
2: amazing love it it's good to have goals (laughs) thanks jared thanks sir
0: We're joined now by a man who cashed in two WSOP main events and the Aussie Millions main. He's also a two-time UK IPT final tablist, a regular on the UK and European circuits. He's been a winner both online and live for a decade now. The pride of Scotland, David Doherty. David, welcome. Cheers for having me, guys. That's quite the
3: introduction there. You had to delve back into the archives to find out that sort of (laughs) stuff, right? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well David I mentioned there your Aussie Millions 10k main event cash Dara went to that event last year and I think he's heading there in a few days time that result was exactly 10 years ago this week it's a strange first cash for a young man from Cambridge Scotland can you tell us how you got there
3: uh, from Coat in Scotland Jesus David
0: <laughs> okay for the record it says Cambridge on the Hendon mob
1: <laughs> oh yeah like it says Brighton Germany for manic loser yeah <laughs> um
3: yeah, it was a kind of strange first cash, but I had like a kind of strange introduction to poker, I think. And the first live tournament I ever played, actually, was the main event in Vegas. Qualified for that five days after I turned 21, and I'd never played live before. So I went over there, I think I played a couple of days in my local snooker club. They'd held like £10 freeze-outs i went and played there a couple of times and then i went to vegas and played some 2-5 and then hopped straight into the main actually i got horrendously coolered in the 2-5 game as well it was like my first ever live cash session i got quad deuces into quad nines and there wasn't a bad beat chat pot either so (laughs) it didn't start off particularly well um yeah the aussie millions was was my second ever live tournament so yeah that was um pretty crazy i just always wanted to go to australia and coming up in poker age 21 aussie millions looked doable especially after I'd played Vegas and felt okay playing that. So played some satellites for that. And I think I got into that like second time of trying. So I had a pretty good return on the old investment there.
1: Yeah, you also played again and cashed in another 10k that year, the World Series of Poker Europe main in London. Was this just some crazy young gun bankroll management with your winnings? Or did you satellite into that as well?
3: No, I satellited into it, but I remember a couple of years later speaking to Max Silver on the dinner break of the UKIPT that we both final tabled and he apparently had heard some rumours that I'd bought into directly with my Aussie Millions winnings. I wasn't sure how to respond to him at the time because he was still in the tournament with me. It was like final two tables. And I was like, do I tell him the truth here or do I go along with this? Because this is going to make me look like a crazy bastard. He like pays me off every time. But um, yeah, I qualified for that one as well on Betfair, if I remember
0: correctly. Oh, good old Betfair. Well, David, my first memory of you was watching the coverage of UKIPT Dublin back when it was televised. You were on the feature table and you made a ridiculously big fold, I remember, versus Irish legend Noel O'Brien. I think you had King Queen on a Queen high board the joke at the time was that you must have seen his cards did you i didn't know um
3: no i I remember that because um i knew you were going to ask about that because i've literally never been to ireland and not had at least one person ask me about that hand yeah it was was king queen on a king high board he aces and i remember speaking to noel afterwards i don't don't remember if it was the irish open the following year maybe a UKIBT in another irish city but i remember noel approaching me the first time I'd seen him after that was televised and I kind of went up to him to just like ask how he was doing and like oh it's good to see you, you know, uh, you know how's things and <laughs> you know like I walked up to him and he pushed me backwards he's like how the fuck did you fold that to me like <laughs> um, I wasn't sure how to take it at first. I wasn't sure if he was, like, being aggressive about it or not. But it was like, hey, you must have sucked my cards, didn't you? And I was like, no, It was a bit of a strange time because I didn't know that he had aces until it broadcast. So I knew I'd made the fold, but I had, like, three months to wait to find out whether I was actually right or not. And, yeah, then when I actually broadcast, it was a number of forum posts popped up and were saying, look at this fold, like, how the hell has this happened try and like break this down and is this a good fold is it a terrible fold results oriented or whatever and um, I remember there was one on two plus two where Max Silver had replied and everyone else was kind of you know somewhat complimentary and then Max had replied and said this is a really really bad fold against Snow Brien if he's ever played with him before unless he's got like a really solid live read on him but I was like well Max like, I would hope that you'd know that <laughs> I'm not in the habit of flopping top pair and check folding without having a very good reason to do it if you watch it back I think it was a foldable spot even without the live reads if you actually think about what his ranges are there.
1: Noel has spoken to me a few times about the hand and each time I've told him, I'm convinced you hadn't seen his hand. And he's like, no, no, there's no way. He must have seen my hand. He must have seen my hand. (laughs) I think the first time I met you was actually in Vegas in the Black Belt house. I remember going to visit Channing there. You've been involved with a couple of the staking companies over the years, Black Belt First, which is probably one of the first big UK-based ones, and more recently, Jamie Burnham's Bear Hug. How are those experiences for you?
3: Yeah, I think with Belt in particular, I really needed that at the time. I mainly joined them for the networking aspect because I was a member of like a couple of online poker forums, but I'd mainly been playing, you know, on my own for like the first two years of my career or something. And I had a big two thousand nine, obviously, but two thousand ten for you know a variety of reasons went horrendously. And towards the end of the year I was getting like really down on myself, like I'd lost a chunk of my role and I just wanted to, you know, have sort of a mentor aspect to my game where I had someone I could actually talk to that I know had been there and done that and you know, Neil at the time was the ideal person when I saw that opportunity. So I really needed that at the time. Met a lot of good friends through there. And then with Bear Hug with Jamie, that was kinda of a similar experience as well, because like, I mean the the thing is I've actually not been staked for the vast majority of my career. The Black Belt one was just for live tournaments. And then with Bearhug, I was there for you know a short period of time just playing online, but it was kind of to help build my role back up again. And that was really useful because I was always of the mindset that I didn't want to apply to staking companies, but I, I got to the stage where I just kind of had to. And then when I applied to a bunch of them, they wouldn't accept me. And I got a couple of like emails back that I thought were a little bit derogatory, like not specifically towards me, but just in the tone that they'd spoken in. I'm not going to name any particular companies, but I just didn't like the way that they were running their business. Yes. Wasn't the it, was firm, was it? For, it wasn't the firm, though.
0: <laughs> I was very worried there for a minute.
3: <laughs> yeah, this is a whole ruse behind the interview. i just come back on to, to get revenge on you. Yeah, there were a couple I just really didn't like the way they were doing business. You know, it's easy for me to say in the position that I was in, yeah, you didn't accept me and I really don't like the way you're running business, blah, blah, blah. But uh, yeah, it's just a, a little bit the opportunity the tone. But yeah, Jamie, Pitt, obviously, I knew Jamie really well. He was just starting Bear Hug up at that point. And that really got me back on my feet as well. And I was really happy with like the experience there, Jamie and and Henry Jacobson. Henry in particular really helped me with kind of the sports psychology side of things because Henry used to be a professional tennis player. So he's used to that competitive aspect and, you know, having to train hard. And they are always really heavily into preparation for your sessions and that was kind of like the mentor aspects that really helped me again in that time frame and I think by the time it came for me to move on from Bearhug I was like really at my peak I think for a couple of years there and then towards the end there, I actually took over Bearhug briefly for a couple of months there we have actually like taken an extended break with it at the moment but yeah i was helping run it with henry for a couple of months there so that was like another interesting aspect of getting involved in
0: that business yeah i can see why henry would go to someone like yourself david i've watched many of your videos for bear hug i've also read a lot of your strategy posts on various forums and facebook groups over the years i've been fortunate enough to be in some of them with you uh, your advice always very on point and you articulate your ideas really well
1: Yeah, I agree with David on your coaching chops. That's why at the Unibet Open Dublin in December when we were asked who in the room would make a good guest commentator, it was pretty much a no-brainer to recommend you. How did you enjoy the experience of commentating?
3: Yeah, I I really appreciate that, guys. I absolutely love it. And that's actually what I was just going to say. I think anyone who knows me and has spoken poker with me for a long time knows that I just absolutely love talking about poker. It's like I could do it all day. If people run hand histories past me, it just really fascinates me how many facets there are to certain situations. And people always approach me about ICM spots if they don't know you well enough that I'm like your second quarter <laughs> call.
1: I have to say, I did watch back some of your commentary and in fact, you were commentating on the bubble. And to your credit, you figured out that the bubble had burst, even though you guys hadn't been told on the basis that I shoved his 10 off under the gun.
3: <laughs> yeah, if it hadn't busted, then yeah, I'd have lost a it, lot. It. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I really, really appreciated that. I love doing that.
0: That's um, definitely one of my favorite parts of poker. Yeah, hopefully you'll get more opportunities in that area. Well, two of your good pals in poker, David, are Newsman Ian Simpson and our former guest, Ryan LaPlante. In fact, I had the great pleasure of both of your company for dinner in Las Vegas a little over a year ago. I thought I'd arrived to a meeting of Ball Bastards Anonymous. But <laughs> joking aside, how important is it to you, that circle of friends? You described it a little bit earlier, how it was important to have a mentor figure, but also that kind of collegial environment around poker groups and whatnot. Has that been a big help for you in poker?
3: Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, just to go back on your point there, you're like Ball Bastards, it's
0: anonymous. <laughs> well, it was one of those sort of fancy steakhouse Vegas restaurants, and there was a moment where it was yourself, Simpson, and LaPlante. And at a certain moment, the waitress came over and said, Guys, you can't wear your hats, and you all took them off simultaneously. <laughs> Ball shaming.
4: It was a bit yes. like.
0: <laughs> I, you were smiling, going, "Yeah, yeah, look at me, all my hair." <laughs> well, I will admit that as my gut grows in my middle age, the one thing I can cling on to is the fact that I do have all my hair.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was good for me. Like, at least I wasn't the only one in company. Normally, I'm the rib of the jokes among my friends. That, um, yeah, at least I had two other bodies with me that night. Yeah, like the group of friends thing is like really important. As I said, like I've, I've met a lot of people I still talk to through the UK I P T and I've always tried to, to keep in contact with people. Even like there's a lot of people I know that don't play poker anymore and I've always like tried to keep in touch and get, get drinks and stuff every now and then. For most of us, like we were all in our early twenties when we met and you know, it's like a really intriguing part of our life that a lot of people don't get to experience you know you're traveling the world you've seen places like Melbourne and Vegas and mm. you know most people even my age now don't have that kind of travel experience so like to do all of that in your early 20s and to get to share it with a bunch of people it's actually quite special in that sense So, I, th- I think it's still important to keep in touch and I think most people that actually end up leaving poker still see it like that as well because there's very few people who've actually left that I've been friends with and I haven't kept in touch with over the years
1: yeah I think you're right like the bonding experience of going to all these places is pretty special you actually made a bit of a comeback about two years ago having not played so much for a while do you mind telling us why you took a step back from the game
3: yeah i think around about 2014 i'd gone practically bust and that was the first time that had ever happened to me and actually it's the only time it's ever happened to me but i mean that was a really grounding experience i don't think i was like an arrogant player by any means i've always tried to be grounded but I've definitely been loose with bankroll management in the past. I think, you know, from 2012 onwards, I don't think I progressed enough at a high enough rate. I don't think I was studying well enough. I was studying, but not at the extent I needed to be. And I've also had issues over the years with depression, which, you know, came and went you know, during that time period, it's been there basically my whole career on and off. But I think that coupled with the fact that I was on a prolonged downswing and I was scraping the bottom of the barrel with my bankroll, you know, that just only heightened the situation. It left me in like a pretty bad place mentally and financially. So it took me a little bit of a while you know, helping with Bear Hub to try and grind that back up. And yeah, as you say, I like, made a little bit of a comeback, if you want to call it that, had a couple of deep runs of it. I don't know necessarily if it's a comeback or not, because I, I really don't understand my own place in the in poker hierarchy, if you like. like. I feel kind of weird as someone who's been around for 10 years, but has never actually done anything, though, it kind of leaves me in this like weird situation where I don't actually understand anymore how I'm perceived.
0: In yeah. an effort to hold a mirror up to you in some way, because I, I can relate to some extent to this as well. Well, I always feel as though the great achievement in poker is surviving in poker. You know, obviously, it's it's fantastic to get a big marquee win, final table in EPT or, you know, win a Unibet Open or something like that. They're obviously amazing moments. But really, the achievement is if you can survive in the game for, you know, more than five years, you're doing better than the vast majority of players. And if you can do it for 10 years, that's a serious achievement in my view
3: yeah I think so too it's just not perceived that way it's not really the poker media but it's more like just the community as a whole still even now even though they know how stupid tournament variance is they still put tournament winners on a pedestal
1: Mm. yeah I think there is a difference between people who are involved in the game actually making their living from the game they do sort of respect as David said the sort of longevity and achievement over a career rather than just one or two big results but for most casual poker fans if a friend of mine is at your table for example at the Irish Open and I go over and tell him oh that's David Doherty in seat seven almost the first question they'll ask me is well, what has he won yeah as anybody involved in the game knows there are people who have you know millions and millions in caches who've never had a pot to piss in and I've gone around from staking deal to staking deal and you know there's even guys with very good resumes in terms of like over a long period winning enough. but similarly it's been other people's money and maybe they're if you count up all the binds they're actually losing players but it is part of the way poker sold is the sort of sporting narrative of like there are these major events and if you win a major event then you're a big player similar to tennis or golf
3: yeah, it's a good point you make there as well about people not having a piss and if they actually win a tournament, you know, I've heard plenty of stories of people being six figures in makeup and winning a tournament for six figures and they don't see any of it.
0: Well, by way of giving maybe grinders like yourself and myself hope, uh, I am reminded now of when Barney Boatman gave us a great interview about a year ago and he Described how he won his bracelet, I think it was probably about two years ago. And with that came maybe a quarter of a million dollars or something of that nature. And he said, I never thought I was going to be one of those guys who won that. And there's Barney Bowman, quite a famous player. But he'd been given the grinder tag and he felt like, oh, well, I'll always be this guy who has some good results, some mediocre results, some medium-sized results, but I'll never get that big score or that bracelet or that photograph. And then he did and he was like, oh, wow. Like, I never realized it was even possible. And there's somebody who's been in the game probably 15, 20 years before any of us. So it says a lot for that mindset that people are in. And maybe there's still hope for us, Dave. There's still hope for us.
3: Yeah, I can't wait till I'm Barney's age and I get my first life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You just Just have to get um, to the next 30 years.
3: No, I definitely see what you're saying there, though. I mean, it's very hard at times to just keep yourself going. But I mean, you are kind of committed to this life at this point. It's one thing that I've learned over the years because I, I did some work with like Jared Tenler as well because the Aussie Millions thing in particular really bugged me for a while because I'd, I'd had the chips in that and I blew them and I did some work with him and it was like you actually don't know what that tournament win would have done to you that might have been the worst thing that could have happened to you if you'd won it back then I had like four or five hair transplants like that well,
1: the, <laughs> Yeah I mean the music industry is littered with the bodies of guys who had success before they could really handle fame or or the monetary the rewards that come with it and you, you do you see kind of the same thing in poker some guys definitely get it too easily too quickly
0: well before you go our colleague <laughs> elliot handed me a question literally moments before this interview began i am assuming it's going to be some scottish thing that nobody else understands let me dig it out here uh, i think it's a two-part request oh god it's actually it's about football so now fuck that So uh, Daryl might be able to keep up with you on this stuff, but I definitely can't. Sorry, Willie. We're going to have to leave it there. You're very much a poker purist, David, and it's been really lovely chatting to you today about, well, all things poker. Best of luck in the future and hope to see you at the table soon. Yeah, cheers guys. Now,
3: just before I go you know, sometimes we get people on podcasts and whatnot. Henry Coban actually did it in Ireland with me. He said when he brought me into the commentary booth that it was really lucky that everyone who would commentated with him in the last month had gone on to win something and he talked about Ryan Reese and I think Jackson Sinclair was in the booth with him and they'd both gone on for big wins. I'm just wondering if I'll actually get any run good off this of appearance. Is there any history of that happening?
0: There is form on this one. There is such a thing as the chip race run good and we've hashtagged that on a few occasions. The- seen people go on to bigger and better things usually only within weeks of being on the show so i'm very optimistic when's the next big one i was going to go to the tour in estonia potentially and that's a 500 bow if you're doing it wrong you want the
1: 10k 2008 david Hardy would have been getting on a plane to melbourne
0: yeah get yourself yeah, into like- Darrell Carney suitcase now and get to melbourne <laughs> and win them the aussie millions yeah. <laughs> great chatting to you okay. Dave. take care
3: yeah thanks for getting me on
0: Ian Simpson is still in the Bahamas, so it's time for Dara Davy with the news. Thank you, David. It's nice to be back. The PSPC
5: concluded last week at the PCA Bahamas, and a Platinum Pass winner took down the title. Ramon Kalilas won the $5.1 million first prize, outlasting a field of 1,039, a mixture of plucky amateurs and, of course, the world's best. French player Julien Martini came second for 3 million, and another Platinum Pass winner, Marc Riviera, came third for 2.2 million. This week's guest Chrissy Bicknell narrowly missed out on the final table, busting
0: an 11th of 330k. Yeah, pretty sick stuff there, Dara. I watched an awful lot of that coverage over the few days and it was amazing to see one of those Platinum Pass winners win. And I think the guy had 11K in scores beforehand and he managed to, I don't know what, multiply that by about 500 or something. Yeah,
5: I would presume that's exactly what Starr's wanted with the Platinum passes that someone gets a ridiculous amount of money who would not have access to it before.
0: Yeah, I saw him get approached by Moneymaker. Right at the end, Moneymaker was saying to him, oh, you're the new Moneymaker. And he said, but not not the new and improved one I think Chris still trying to hang on to that title but yeah great to see and obviously I think a great boon for poker that it was won not by one of the game's elite Steve O'Dwyer doesn't need more money yeah none of them need any more money as far as I know (laughs) well what about the other results from the PSPC and in fact the PCA
5: shout out to Malta based Irishman Sven McDermott who was the last Irishman standing former guest Dan Wilson also made the money Paul Leckie was the unfortunate bubble boy running kings into aces at the worst possible moment at the time of recording, the PCA main event is heading into Day 3, but there have been some of the results in the Caribbean. The 25k one-day high roller was won by Sean Winter, defeating David Peters heads up. The 50k high roller was won by Reina Kempe, with GPI number 1 Alex Foxen taking second. The 100k super high roller was won by Sam Greenwood, who beat Henrik Hecklin for the title. Finally, the 1K national event was won by Ole Shemion. So there you
0: see plenty of beasts winning plenty of money. So they didn't yeah. need the PSPC on top of all of that. Um, I have to ask you one question, though, Daryl, while you're here, because you are a person who has a strong opinion on all things poker. Do you feel like poker stars have put to bed now their damaged brand image from maybe the past few years? I know that was a big motivator for an event like this. I think it's
5: two separate issues, to be perfectly honest. It's nice that millions has been injected back into the poker community, but I'll be honest, I'm not sure the Platinum Pass has achieved what they wanted to in the sense it created some bitterness, I think, with people. Been a bit of haves and <laughs>
0: have nots. Yeah, the people, exactly. The people who got them felt great and were all like, yay, I'm going off to the Bahamas to win millions. And everyone else like, oh, I'm so happy for you. Yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, it's a good thing. You
5: can't criticise stars for it, but in terms of their bad press from a couple of years ago i
0: don't think that gets rid of it necessarily no i gotta agree with you there i think they are separate issues and and like you said fair play for doing what they've done here but really you know they haven't addressed the original problem and, and, and addressed the original victims of what was a pretty shitty state of affairs a few years back There has been a lot of chat in the last few days on social media about are they likely to do it again? If they did it again, how would they do it? I hear a rumour that maybe they will do it again, but in a different form. They might make it a 5K or a 10K and try and give out maybe three or four times as many platinum passes, maybe a thousand over the year, something like that. Now, that is just a pure rumour. But if they were to do something like that, what do you think of it? I think I would like that more. And yeah, I think there would be maybe
5: less bitterness as in it's not everything or nothing. It seems like more of the community would get them. So everyone would have something to look forward to having said that the Bahamas is expensive to get to it sure is (laughs) and stay at and buy a coke at even
0: (laughs) yeah well maybe they won't do it in the Bahamas either well look there must be a little bit more news I know it's been mostly dominated by PSPC but I know we have one announcement this week yeah absolutely coming up in the future the
5: Irish Open 2019 has announced its schedule the 1 million euro guarantee main event will be re-entry again with four day ones this year it's a jam-packed schedule with the 2k high roller a 1k side event the 550 Americas Cup, the 350 PLO Championship, the 250 Ladies event, the 250 Seniors event, the 550 JP Masters, the 350 Heads Up, and the 350 Liam Flood Memorial. The festival will be held in City West and run from the 15th to the 22nd of April.
0: Yeah, that is a pretty jam-packed schedule. Almost tongue-twisted, you're trying to get all those events out. It is always one of the highlights on the power calendar. But the one thing again, I want to maybe highlight, and then this is a recurring theme as well, is the re-entry. You know, certain websites are going away from re-entry. Certain websites never had them to begin with. Obviously, re-entry is popular with some people in the live format because they take time to travel to an event and and maybe then they want to more justify their expenses. Where do you stand on something as prestigious as the Irish Open with all its history being re-entry? I would prefer it wasn't with a higher buy-in,
5: to be perfectly honest. Slightly higher but I guess the 1 million prize pool is a very attractive thing I think the reality of a format like that is it's 600 unique entries
0: sure I I know from speaking to JP who is of course one of the co-owners of the Irish Open these days he's just so keen to build it bigger and bigger he wants numbers so he's happy with the 1k price point and the re-entry format obviously helps him build a prize pool and in his mind he wants it to be a 2 million prize pool in a couple of years time and he's building step by step towards that so I guess when you have an organizer the likes of jp who's really ambitious i suppose you've got to get behind the concept with them and hopefully he'll turn it round. because there were a few dark days of the irish open towards the end of their paddy power days that is very true they even had a terrible commentator that final year as i recall yeah. and for what it's worth i've never had a bad experience it's always great yeah combined with the fantastic norwegian championships it is one of the highlights on the poker calendar if any of you can get to it please do Dara davy thank you so much it's great to have you back you're welcome. anytime. For strategy this week, we are joined by the fabulous Diva Burn. Diva, welcome back.
6: Thanks for having me, guys, and hello.
0: Hi Dave. Well, Diva, you pinged our a a few days ago with the recommendation to cover what has become the hand of the year, certainly the fold of the year so far, from Tai, Zhua and Nguyen during day two of the PSPC. Well, it's fair to say coming towards the bubble of such a big tournament, 25k bubble, you know, a lot of people got in this through satellites or maybe through platinum passes. I don't think either of these two did, but that's a little bit significant. Even if you're an hour off, there's starting to be a little bit of ICM pressure, which might encourage people to take slightly more passive lines with that in mind i'll call the action with ace queen nguyen opened the button to 12k as 2500 5k with a 5k ante and from the big blind athanasius polychronopoulos 3 bet to 37k holding aces nguyen makes the call pretty standard his sizing's probably a little on the small side out of position what do we make of it so far dara
1: yeah i think his sizing is a bit small like you said out of position he probably does this because he has a really strong hand i suspect he's not really balanced here but he doesn't want to lose his customer uh,
6: it was interesting actually when i was reading an article that thai made a note on american player making a very quick three bet and she said that signaled trend that he was very strong in this three bet this time
0: okay so some live stuff already creeping in Often the quick three battles tend
1: to be strong. At least you can rule out marginal hands where the player might have to think about whether they want to call or the amount that they want to raise
0: yeah so interesting to note that maybe from Nguyen's point of view she's already putting her opponent on a legit holding but with ace queen obviously she has too strong a hand herself not to defend could she have however considered a raise is that something you would consider ace queen sometimes a really good four betting hand because it's got good blockers you can four maybe let it go did she have the kind of stack she could do that
1: I think given the positions button versus blind this isn't a great spot to do that because a hand like ace queen while it's in great shape against his range overall it's basically just mild ahead of the weak part of his range you know the ace suited type hands but it's actually in bad shape against the top of his range you know aces kings queens ace king all those hands which he can have as well so really all the four bets likely to do is fold out the part of the range that we're in good shape against and give us a really tough spot if he five bet shoves
0: yeah that makes an awful lot of sense well the flop comes king of spades queen of diamonds nine of spades the kind of board an out of position aces doesn't particularly love you know he can have been overtaken there's a lot of the hands that chief flats there that have smashed this board but at the same time you know aces is aces he does decide to check probably hoping to take a street out and Nguyen checks back her second pair top kicker probably a slam dunk check back from her but I am interested to know your opinion on checking the aces
1: Um, I think that the decision whether to check aces or not depends on what we think of her range while it's true that we don't like seeing this board king queen nine with two spades when we have aces specifically and in terms of where we are in our range, we've kind of slipped down our range because pre-flap we had the best possible hand, but now we're behind kings, queens, king-queen. It depends on how many of those hands we think she could have. If, if if we think she can't have kings or queens, then this is actually a very good board for us. Um, we're, we're, we, we have a much stronger range than she has and our hand is, a, is ahead of the vast majority of her range. So I think we should just go ahead and bet it. If we're afraid that she is capable of flatting kings or queens, then that strengthens her range and I think that makes it okay to check. But I think probably betting is still better.
0: Yeah, well, he did check and so did she. And my hunch here is that both players probably give their opponents some showdown value. The turn comes the Queen of Hearts, a very favourable turn card for a win. Uh, again, Athanasius decides to check. Now, in my mind, this seems like a pretty good spot to start betting. Your opponent can have queens, but you can obviously have a lot of other stuff as well. And maybe you have to start getting value and maybe you have to start depriving of some equity realisation Dara yeah I think once the
1: flop goes check check she is trying to get to showdown in most worlds she might have the very occasional monster but I think even her monsters are likely to start betting on the flop to try and build a pot
0: so after Athanasius checks Nguyen fires out 17k with her trips into a pot of 81.5k what do we think of her sizing here Diva she's gone for a really small sizing with a hand that's probably good and probably values from also denying him some equity
6: yeah, I would love to see her bed being a little bit bigger. As she's probably she's quite confident, she's got the best hand at the moment, and just getting value from one pair of hands and possibly some draws
1: yeah I think under normal circumstances she should bet a bigger sizing when he takes this line checking the flop and then checking the turn I don't think he ever has air because I think his air would have bluffed by now so he basically either has a super strong hand and I mean obviously we have a very strong hand but we don't have the nuts or he has something which is trying to get to showdown like a king so I think given that that's his range normally we should bet a fairly bigger sizing because I don't think he's ever check folding and by betting a really small amount we give him a very easy check call with pretty much his entire range Using a bigger sizing puts him in a difficult spot. The one um, caveat I'd put on all of that is given the proximity of the bubble and the fact that he covers her, that sort of incentivizes her not to want to play as big a pot as
0: normal.
6: I guess, yeah, she's getting paid by pocket tents and pocket jacks. The handset would definitely fall to a bigger bet.
0: I think that's a really interesting point, given, as we said, the proximity to the bubble, how ICM would certainly put some pressure on her and maybe make her go for some different sizings. Well, anyway, he calls, as obviously he would do with aces here. He is going to be good an awful lot of the time, although we know he isn't right now. The river comes the ace of spades, completing the flop flush draw. And we know that boat players have now improved to boats. He's got aces full and she's got queens full of aces to pretty huge hands in in this situation Athanasius decides to check again Nuin bets 50k into 115k a sort of 40% bet and Athanasius goes all in this obviously provokes a pretty long tank now in the tv coverage of it it was cuss to make it look like she makes her decision a lot sooner but before we reveal what happens for those who maybe haven't watched us what do we make of Athanasius's check
1: I think his check is completely standard I, I think given the line he's taken he just doesn't yeah. have any leads here a lot of his range is sort of weak trying to get the show down so if he's going to start betting the real top of his range then that really weakens that range even more and means when he checks he just doesn't have any strong hands so I think given the line he's He's taken on the turn he, he pretty much just, just has to check 100% of the time here irrespective of the fact that obviously his, his hand would like to bet
6: yeah I actually agree I think by checking also if he looks weaker and he is like bound to get more value by inducing some bluffs possibly if she has any and by leading out it probably you know would fold out you know some strong hands
0: that makes sense well Nguyen bet 50k into 115k do we like that sizing
6: I actually do. I think obviously she's bad for value and she must have had some kind of plan in her head. When she bets so big and he shoves, I think she, yeah, definitely better to fold because you kind of find out information by, you know, bearing bigger. He's unlikely to have any bluffs. I actually myself couldn't think of any bluffs in his hand
0: yeah it seems to me that it's unlikely he can have a flush given that it's the ace of spades on the river making a lot of his likelier flush combos that maybe would have taken passive lines to this point so more likely she's targeting a sort of a king x hand and hoping to get one streak from someone who doesn't believe her
1: or is nine i mean i think all of those hands are possible she's targeting a pretty weak range and i think that's why her sizing is good she can get more correct calls
0: makes sense and then as i said athanasius goes all in now he's putting 200k in here a raise of about 150k setting her all in he's got chips behind win thanks for quite a while on this one according to the reporters what do we feel when we're weighing up our our range in this spot dara i know you talk an awful lot about how good value bets on rivers can suddenly shrivel up in their value when facing another bet here and, and really she's forced into the absolute upper echelons of her range if she wants to find a call
1: Yeah, the key to this decision is basically, while we have a very strong hand, we're not beating anything that he plays for value this way. Even if he has a worse house, queen nine suited or pocket nines, I don't think he's going to raise that. He'll probably just call those because he has to fear king, queen, ace, queen. This is a situation where basically she's bet the third nuts on the river and gotten raised. In those situations, most people recognize that the third nuts isn't actually strong enough to continue with. Usually when you analyze these spots, we're obviously supposed to call with the nuts. And we're also supposed to call with the second nuts to avoid being bluffed too much. But the third nuts isn't really strong enough. So once she gets check raised and she realizes she's only beating a bluff, then the decision comes down to, well, is he bluffing or not? And this would be a very odd spot to bluff. It would also be a very odd line to take to bluff. Most people, if they're going to bluff, are going to bluff in a fairly straightforward manner, probably just by betting the flop. Going check, check on the flop and then check calling the turn and then checking the river and intending to bluff. That's very elaborate. And I, 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 don't, I don't think most people actually bluff that way.
0: If we are trying to look for some bluffs in his hand, Dara, and, and I know it is pretty difficult to do given his line. The only bluff I could kind of conjure in my mind, and maybe he's more likely to take a bluff spot because he can put her all in. An hour off the money is Ace King. Ace King obviously has a lot of value to maybe being a reasonable call down but ace king does have the perfect blockers to the best boats that maybe he could turn a hand like that into a devilishly evil bluff. Yeah, I think if we are
1: trying to look around for bluffs, any hand which blocks houses is a good candidate. So if he has ace king or ace nine or king nine, they're all reasonable candidates. They're the kind of hands that might make reasonable check raise bluffs too in the sense that if the flop goes check, check, they're going to win a lot. But when she bets, he's no longer ahead of the value range. The only thing is I'm not too sure how many of those hands he actually gets to the river with i think ace king would bet the flop ace nine i think is the one hand i can pick out that might play this way he decides not to bet the flop because he just has bottom pair um it goes check check on the turn the queen comes and his hand is still very weak but he decides he's going to hang on for one street and see what happens on the river he improves kind of but not really but he knows that he's beating a king now so he checks but then when she bets he thinks well i'm not good anymore so therefore i'll turn my hand into a bluff so that's probably in my mind the only hand that plays that way as a bluff
6: yeah i just see it unlikely him having ace nine in his hand Well so much of this comes down to image and I suppose if he had
0: maybe targeted Nguyen as somebody capable of making the kind of foal that she did ultimately make it would make hands like that more attractive bluff propositions but you can never be so sure that someone won't get sticky with a hand like ace queen or king queen in that spot and just call you down and then you look very silly when you've turned a a hand of that value into a bluff candidate. Yeah I think there's a
1: perception among a lot of male players at least that female players in particular don't like to get bluffed and they think that everybody's trying to bluff them and push them around and bully them and therefore they don't actually make good bluff candidates
0: yeah one interesting extra point to all of this is while people watched at home and and this video did go viral she does a a slightly unusual thing so in the end she does find the fold dara was right she analyzed the hand pretty well i think to to find what i think is for a good player uh, let's not call it standard and take away any credit but like a, a fold that you should find after a little bit of thinking i think maybe she does find the fold but she says yeah as she turns the hand over and kind of flips over her hand now you know once you flip over your hand in that way obviously She's not making a call. Some people thought that maybe the the word yeah could be an angle shoot, that it could mean call. I would like to say to kind of put that to bed. I did see a post from Chad Holloway where he said, just spoke to Athanasius about this hand and he said absolutely no angling aspect to it. He said she 100% owned me. Some days you just get owned. He said the cameras made it a great moment to show that she'd made a great lay down. So obviously Athanasi is keen to give credit where credit's due for a, a well thought out hand and a, a good decision by Nguyen in the end but maybe the theme here is there's a lot of hype about this hand perhaps it's not quite as oh my god above the rim as it would seem on first glance
1: I mean I still give her enormous credit for making this fold because it's hard to do in the heat of the moment my, my friend Andrew Brokus on his podcast Thinking Poker said recently that one thing that humans are very bad at is changing their mind about the strength of their hand and you know when she bets the river she's obviously going for value she's thinking i have a house this is great i'm going to get more chips here and then when she gets raised she's calm enough to stand back and reevaluate and see how strong her hand actually is the reason why this hand has gone viral is a lot of people can't imagine that they would make the fold it's one thing to be able to sort of sit back like we're doing now and say yeah it's actually an easy fold because he shouldn't be bluffing with this line and she only has the third knots but i think in game you have to give her credit for finding the fold
6: yeah, I think it's pretty impressive, and I really believe the same that not many people or players would have done that, especially on the feature table. People hate being loved. So, yeah, I mean, fair use to her, and very well done for thinking it through and making a big forward.
0: Yeah, here, here to that. I think, as Athanasius said, the cameras made it a great moment, and that they surely did. We're joined now by a lady who has gone back to back, staying on top of the GPI ladies' rankings with 2.3 million in live winnings. She's the APPT Macau High Roller Champion, the WPT Five Diamond 5K Champion, and a two time WSOP Bracelet winner, including the 2013 ladies' event. She's, of course, Chrissy Bicknell. Chrissy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. For pleasure. Well, Chrissy, looking through your impressive list of results, they go all the way back to 2006, but I think it's fair to say they were all. Pretty modest until that WSOP ladies result. Was that a huge turning point or does it just look that way on paper? A little bit. It
7: might look that way on paper. I would say the big turning point was when I won the second bracelet in 2016. But from that time, you know, when I learned poker, I was just playing cash games live, online. And then once in a while went to, I think, Turning Stone is maybe where my first results is from nothing too impressive, just kind of dabbled in tournaments. And even when I won the ladies event, it was almost like a poker vacation for me in a way, because I was grinding Supernova Elite at the time. And it was just a way to play poker for fun. And I was kind of like, let's play the ladies event, have a good time, see what happens, and then ended up winning it. But I definitely wasn't a tournament player at the time by any means. didn't really know too much about short stack poker. And then I guess due to the nature of online poker, in the next couple years, it became less profitable or less of an option to do Supernova Elite and to continue playing cash
0: <laughs> It's a online. very polite way of putting it.
7: <laughs> yeah. So... Then, yeah, I eventually went to live poker, started playing cash games, realized, oh, hey, I'll play this tournament. It looks like a good one. And then ended up again, <laughs> binking a tournament and realizing this is a lot of fun. And yeah, and then from there, I decided to focus on that and I guess chase the high of winning a tournament again.
1: I have a question here from Diva Byrne. A big thank you to Diva who helped us put this interview together. Out of your very impressive poker resume so far, what do you feel most proud of?
7: I would say there's a couple things. I think that when I did Supernova Elite, there's definitely a lot of pride I have in that because it took so much hard work and so much discipline in order to do that and achieve it. And I think that I had one year that was particularly good where I was profitable at the tables, which was a challenge for those who are familiar, it's like you're playing 24 tables at once or 16 tables and playing basically like eight hours a day for the whole year. And you are making a lot in rake back. So there's not a huge pressure to profit that much at the tables because you're clearing so much rake back. So a lot of people would just play and basically, you know, make a hundred K a year in rake. And I had a year where I I think I got like 1.25 million VPPs, which was like supernova elite plus like 25% and actually like one at the tables as well. Wow! And that felt really good. I definitely wasn't one of the best regs, but to have a year where I was definitely, you know, maybe top 10 or 15, I'm not really sure exactly, but yeah, it, it took a lot of pride and I worked really hard at being able to not only put in those hours, to have a game that's actually making money handling like the emotional up and downs of that definitely took a lot of work and I'm really proud of that and then I would say it's not particularly necessarily one win that I'm really proud of there's definitely moments you know that are highlights like winning that tournament in Macau and like playing David Peters heads up that was really fun and obviously a huge highlight but I think that I feel proud of myself for kind of going through the whole battle overall, because I think when poker is going good, it's very easy. But when things are going bad in the bad moments, that's what's Really, really challenging, and people don't necessarily talk about that that much. And I think that taking bad beats and then showing up the next day, not everybody does that.
0: Well, that segues very nicely to my next question. I read a quote from you recently where you said that you're really drawn and inspired by people that work really hard, that they show you that it's okay to put all your time and focus into one thing in order to be great. That does remind me a little bit of my co host here. I know. (laughs) grinded supernova elite as you mentioned there and as someone who grinded supernova and double supernova on maybe six or seven occasions I know how much bigger doing elite is particularly 1.25 elite which just blows my mind frankly (laughs) are there big sacrifices you had to make in order to get to where you are right now and I suppose in the amount of time that achieving supernova elite takes do you have to just sort of like switch away from everything else
7: it's funny because a lot of people say sacrifice but I genuinely love playing and love what I'm doing. So even when I was doing that, I actually did still wake up looking forward to playing. I think that what you have to sacrifice is a little bit of maybe like comfort in life, if that makes sense. So when I was doing that, I was really disciplined in getting up and going to the gym first and making sure that I'm doing that and that I'm like eating well to make sure I didn't get sick. Because if you got sick doing Supernova Elite, there's a really good chance you don't make it because you can't miss a day. So it's really important to stay healthy. And I, I guess I'd be lying if I said I didn't sacrifice some level of like a social life. That's probably one thing that lacks in my life. I think, for me, it doesn't feel so much like a sacrifice because I I just genuinely really have a lot of passion and like what I'm doing.
1: One pattern I think I've noticed among a lot of the top female players is that a lot of them seem to come from hyper-competitive families, often with lots of brothers. Was that the case with you?
7: Oh, that's really interesting, I didn't know that. Well, my dad is a race car driver and my parents have their own business that they started when they were very young, and they're definitely incredibly hardworking. Like legitimately, my dad's going into his business on Christmas day. So yeah, I definitely came from that. I have two sisters, uh, no brothers, but I grew up around the racetrack, which is definitely a competitive atmosphere, and one of my sister's race go-karts, I did as well. So yeah, I would say that did exist for sure.
0: Another one from Diva here. What, in your opinion, are the most vital characteristic qualities required for a successful poker player? Do you think that they differ between male and female players?
7: That's interesting. Well, one thing I've noticed from the women players that I've met and spoke to is I think that, I don't want to generalize, but I do think that in general, men are more competitive than women. And so the women that are in poker tend to be a little bit more competitive, more maybe masculine, stronger females. But I would say overall, I mean, being competitive leads to so many positive aspects of being a poker player because you're not just going to sit at a table and feel okay with, you know, someone else like owning you in hands. You're going to be thinking, you know, this guy's trying to exploit me by doing this. What do I need to do to adjust? Like, what do I need to do to win at this table? Because I know myself being pretty competitive, losing feels really uncomfortable. So Mm. you work hard to avoid that. Probably the biggest thing I think is continually learning the game and being open minded to learning and to be interested in the game, knowing that even if you're talking to a player who you think, you know, isn't as experienced as you or maybe doesn't have thought process that you agree with, like you can learn something from every single poker player, Any poker tournament like recently i went semi-deep in a main event and i was obviously upset that i had busted but i was thinking every time that you go that deep is like such a good learning experience because playing under that pressure seeing how people play under pressure you could just learn so much about the game and i think that that's something that the best players are constantly doing is learning and a lot of the players who are stuck with poker, who maybe aren't as successful, I think that they stop doing that. They're just playing the game mindlessly and autopiloting.
1: Speaking of divers, she recalls bumping into you after the Montreal Millions when you jumped on a flight to Vegas at the last minute to go and play the 25k at the Bellagio. Do you plan for the year's games in advance at all or do you just follow the action?
7: Well, actually, that's something I need to do right now is kind of go over my schedule for the next year. I would say I'm a little bit of both, planning a couple months at a time. You know, I always know I want to go to Aussie Millions every year, so I'll plan for that. I always know the World Series is there. So there's like the key events that I'm always going to hit and then fill in the in-between with other stuff. But I can tell you that when I bust a tournament tournament, the thing I want to do the most is get in another one. Wow. <laughs> Some people don't have that. They're like, oh, I'm done with poker. And I just feel the only way that relieves my tilt from busting is getting to another tournament because then it takes my mind off of like the disappointment because then I'm thinking like, oh, there's another opportunity. It's okay.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really wonderful attribute to have. I think it's like, it's all about recovery time. Some people you know, they just take too long to recover. And that definitely affects their ability to grind.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you allow yourself too much of that, I think that it could kind of train your mind to not be okay with playing under stress, which you need to be okay with. You know, a lot of people recently, a discussion I've had is playing in games with tough regulars or something. And the thing is, is that if you're at a table with people who are all really good, you're training yourself to play under circumstances that are tougher. It's only making you tougher, mm. you know, if if you allow that. And it's crazy. Like, I think that there is a mental muscle to poker. You know, I never used to be able to put in like 10 hour sessions online and feel okay. That's something that, you know, you work up to. Yeah. So I think that being able to bust a tournament and play under that tilt that you might have, you know, to recover, snap out of it, and say, okay, it's okay. Like, let's think about the next hand. That's something that also you need to do during a tournament because very rarely is a tournament ever gonna just go smooth and you win every hand and you don't have to deal with like tilts or feeling, you have a hundred big blinds. Now all of a sudden you have 10 big blinds. Like you can't just give up, you have to fight. And that's a really strong mental battle. There's no denying like the mental aspect of poker and the mental game and I really do think it's a muscle that you just work on and I do think that a lot of people who have that attitude of oh I'm tilted I need a break I can't play today I can't play today I think to be honest maybe I'm being too tough on myself but I think that that might be a spot where people can probably toughen up a little bit and figure out how can I play with this because it is possible and I do think you know look at Someone who's a great example of this is David Peters. I mean, he's the one jumping from plane to plane, to tournament to tournament. It's insane. And clearly there's no tilt or mental thing challenges that he's having it's pretty impressive
1: yeah that's really interesting i haven't thought too much about it in terms of poker but now that you mentioned it, it makes perfect sense i mean it's something when i was a runner i was much more aware of because sort of the difference between let's say recreational runners and top class runners is that like recreational runners will often say oh my knee is sore or, or, or my hamstring is tight i don't think i should run today whereas yeah. like the, the professional runners know that if you only run when you feel 100 you're just never going to get out the door
7: yeah that's really interesting
1: yeah and you really have to be able to do When I I run the really long stuff, part of the training was actually training yourself to run when you felt really bad, like just after eating or just after. Oh, that's really interesting. When you're already very tired.
7: Yeah. I find that stuff actually really interesting with exercise and, you know, the mind-body connection. It's huge.
0: Yeah, I think there's another big connection there to your Supernova Elite background as well. I think you can take a day off doing that. So you can't just go, oh, I've been beating up all week and I can't win a cash pot right now. I think I'll just yep. take three days off. You're like, oh, no, if I do that, I actually do have to make up those hours later in the month or whatever it is. Exactly. Uh, great training for just sort of not being precious about any one tournament. Yep. If you're getting straight back on the horse. Absolutely.
1: We interviewed uh, Jennifer Tilly a few weeks ago, and she said that she doesn't like to play poker with Philak. Do you feel the same with your boyfriend,
4: Alex? <laughs>
7: Okay, I think I like playing final tables with him, (laughs) I guess. I don't like playing with him early in the tournament. I don't know. I don't mind it. Obviously, like, he's a really good player, and he tends to be, like, the table captain, which makes it really annoying. It's actually funny. Like, I have a picture of the first time I ever played with him. I had taken a picture of him just to be like, who is this guy, to someone else, because I guess he kept three-betting me every hand. And I was like, does this kid know what he's doing? He's definitely, you know, tough to play against. He's also fun to play against so I like playing with him in the sense of I like being around him I like watching him play I think that he's someone who's one of the most talented poker players there is and it's fun to watch it's really fun to watch people play versus him I just don't like when he busts me from tournaments and it seems to happen a lot (laughs) he plays really good and runs good yeah he's literally he's busted me so many times so beyond that I like playing
0: with him (laughs) You said there about enjoying watching other people's responses to my reminder of our interview from a few weeks back with top UK pro Tom Hall. He said how he really hates when I was that intense stare. And I did wonder, does he dare do it when he's in a hand with you or would he get a slap later if he tried it?
7: (laughs) I don't really care. I mean, it just kind of makes me laugh sometimes. (laughs) Um, I don't know. It doesn't bother me. I like the intensity,
0: so... On a more serious note, though, you mentioned your competitiveness. Does the competitiveness then extend to your relationship? You know, obviously both doing the same things. It's unusual to do the exact same thing as your partner, particularly if it's in a competitive environment as poker is.
7: I think that where the conflict can lie is feeling like So say we are at the same table or something and we both know how much we want to do well. And it's hard in the sense of I don't want to bust him from a tournament, but I want to do well. And I know he wants to do well and I want him to do well. And there's just like some conflicting interests that happen. So that can be kind of a challenge that's like difficult to separate sometimes.
0: Has there been ever any of those moments where maybe he took an unusual line that you didn't approve of and that resulted in you busting? And then, you know, it's a pretty salty car ride home.
7: No, no, I feel like we handle it pretty well, to be fair. And I think that, you know, we understand the game. And I feel like it's a pretty nice relationship to have, actually, because I think that we both are really similar in the sense of being really competitive and wanting to do well, that we understand the emotions of it. And I think that that's really, really helpful.
1: Well, another question from Diva. Since you started playing, do you think there's been a positive change for women at the tables? And also, what more, in your opinion, could be done to encourage more women to transition into live poker?
7: Hmm, that's interesting. It might be difficult to answer the first question because I see a difference with... I think being more known, maybe gaining a little bit more respect, the experience for me has definitely changed from when I first started playing. There definitely is some talented women poker players out there. And I think that when that happens, maybe men learn to not underestimate us so much. Mm. And I definitely think that as women succeed and do well, that the feeling of, oh, you're like an easy spot at the table, that isn't necessarily the instant reaction so I would say there's a slight change in that I don't know there's a change in that for me but I still think that in general a girl sits down and the initial reaction is oh she doesn't know what she's doing or whatever it is I I think what's unfortunate to me is I think that there's just this huge hurdle to get respect as a female in poker and mm-hmm. I, I think that that's probably unfortunately going to exist for a long time. Like I think in order for a woman to get the respect that a man will get with the exact same results, they'll just have to do so much more to prove that. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. I was at the Aussie Millions last year, and uh, you actually came over to talk to some of the young Germans at the table. And after you left, it was really noteworthy to me how much obvious respect they had for you. And then I thought, well, like, why is that noteworthy? And then I thought about all the previous instances in the past when you know female players were there, they talked, and then they went away, and then the guys all immediately start bitching about how terrible they are. Yeah. But. You know that didn't happen with you so I guess like it must feel good to sort of carve out that respect to some degree
7: oh that's interesting well that's nice to hear Um, yeah I think that was something when I was younger that I cared a lot more about you know a topic that came up I played the 100k at the World Series Europe and I think like reactions in the chat or reactions from people is like, why is she playing that? Like, she shouldn't be there. Well, I think there was a lot of other people who probably shouldn't be playing it either if you want to assess that. But why is there so much focus on me? Because I'm a girl. I mean, I don't think my abilities are that much different than some of the other professional players. And if I was a fish, don't you want that? It's interesting that there was just this negative reaction by some people that I shouldn't be there, that I don't deserve to be like in 100K with men. And it's confusing and frustrating to me that that exists.
0: Yeah, there's certainly no logic to that. On a similar topic, I mentioned at the top that you are on top of the GPI ladies rankings for a consecutive year. Your predecessor, Kate Hall, had some misgivings about that award I remember at the time of receiving it she said the concept of female player of the year to me doesn't make a lot of sense there were 77 men in her case who finished ahead of me in the overall player of the year race and for me to get an award ahead of 76 of them it feels that it has to send the message that I'm not accepted to be able to compete with them now there is no doubt whatsoever in my mind anyway and I'm sure in most players mind that you compete with the very best but there are currently 21 guys in front of you in the GPI would you share Kate's concerns about the perception of that prize?
7: Oh, it's such a complicated topic. I see where she's coming from. I do think that one way to fight the battle of, you know, women being disrespected in poker or whatever it might be, is for women to get good results. And I do think it's important to celebrate the success of women. I do understand where she's coming from, that why is there this category? Because we are from a level playing field. I understand that. Unfortunately, if poker isn't at a state where the fields are 5% or less women, like that's a huge difference. And it's just such a confusing topic. I feel what she feels. And then I also understand, and I hope for me, like, if I have a legacy in poker, I hope that it's that I can like fight that a little bit and you know, show that a woman can be successful. Like someone who comes to mind is Jennifer Harmon. Like I think she's a really good female figure in poker. She's been a professional for years and years. She crushes. She still does. Like you go to the Bellagio and see her grinding it out. And I have so much respect for her. And I think she was respected by her peers, you know, when you watch her in, I think it's high stakes poker or whatever the show was. But there's just always that spotlight on female poker players because I guess they're rare or whatever it might be. So why not have the spotlight on the successes of them, I guess. And maybe it encourages women to play more. It's tricky. I really don't know exactly how I feel about it. If I'm for or against having female awards or ladies events, I try to take, you know, a laid back approach to it more than anything because I don't feel strongly either way if that makes sense I think that I just try to appreciate the positives of both sides you know I play ladies events and I see that some women love it and there is positive aspects yes there's negative aspects but I'll just try to take the positive of each so winning the GPI award I'll just try to be proud with that and understand that okay Maybe I can try to use this award in some sort of way to show other women that, you know, you don't have to be scared to sit at a poker table with men because it's actually shocking to me that I've had conversations with women who feel intimidated to do that. I, I don't experience that. And I like hate that they do because I don't like giving men that power to, to, to make it seem like, oh, a woman shouldn't be sitting here. Like, wh- what are you talking about? We have every right to sit there.
1: When we interviewed uh, Jennifer Shahadi a few months ago, she complimented us on finding a new way to ask a lot of questions that women in poker always seem to get asked. Okay. <laughs> do you think it's still important to address these subjects because obviously they still exist? Or do you think bringing up those topics is problematic in itself because it's basically treating women differently, you know, asking every woman, what's it like to be a woman in poker?
7: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Sometimes I hate the questions that I get asked and they feel very. Very sexist, actually. I think my gut would fall towards the last part of what you said, like that it is bringing attention to, ooh, you're a girl in poker, you know, versus just treating me like a regular player. Hmm. But I do understand that it's a topic of interest and maybe unavoidable topic. I'm not sure.
0: And we do feel that tension ourselves because it is almost like, I think Darren and I would both love to just sort of be able to Maybe just not ask a question of that nature at all. But then you feel like you're top of the game. You know, you're one of the best 25 players in the world by this year's rankings. You could make a very strong argument you're one of the best 10 in the world. And I suppose the one unique thing about you in that grouping is that you're a woman. And I suppose when Vanessa Selps was, she was probably the only woman in the top 10. And actually being one woman in the top 10 is punching way above your weight as a gender anyway, because you do probably only represent three or 4% of the game. Um, Yeah. So I've never seen the correlation or the connection myself between women and being inferior players in any way. I've always felt like it's just a numbers game. Yes. But it is that perception, I guess. And and I suppose as interviewers, you know, you're trying to find a way to do an honest (laughs) interview, address it, but not address it. I don't know. It's a a tricky tightrope
7: no i i totally understand it i just find i'm not really sure of my feelings towards all of it it's confusing yeah. to me and then i just think of myself like what you were saying like i don't think of myself as oh i'm a female in poker
1: i think part of the problem is that to a lot of female players you're sort of a role model and it's like they expect you to be a spokesperson but like that's not what you signed up for you just signed up to become a really good poker player <laughs> exactly
7: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly so when people are like oh women need to play poker more i'm like i don't know You know, it's undeniable that poker is definitely more of a masculine interest
0: yes it, it, it extends you know diva does such phenomenal work promoting women who are in the game and getting women to start playing the game for the first time and i'm always in awe of the work she does to bring that together and the dedication she puts into it but i also feel this tension like one of my best friends cat here uh, she, she lives close by cat ironsby she's a wonderful poker writer she just fucking hates women's events she's just like it's just stupid and it's backwards and it's the wrong direction so yeah you're, like, you're caught in this spot where you respect the work being done to promote women in the game and to get women into the game. But at the same time, you kind of think how shitty is it in the first place that this sledgehammer approach is necessary because we're so fucking obnoxious as a gender that we haven't made women feel like they should just come and play a game of cards with us.
7: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And her like Facebook group and everything is really nice. And what I was saying about celebrating the success of women, I mean, I don't think I ever have a deep run that I don't get tagged in a post. And it's, it's nice. And I appreciate that. And I know that she has a really big community that she's grown online. And it's definitely like very positive. And I think that a lot of people really appreciate that. And I know I do. And she's definitely a great person around poker overall.
0: Absolutely. Well, finally, Chrissy, back-to-back does sound good, but back-to-back-to-back sounds an awful lot better. Are you planning on putting in the same volume or maybe even more next year?
7: I would say what sounds better is being like top five overall. Hell Yeah. <laughs> the- Yeah, that's what I would like to go
0: for. Well, some donkey got it this year, so I imagine it's very doable.
7: (laughs) I think so. I would definitely be disappointed if I didn't win back to back to back. I think that it's very doable and I hope to get like top five, top 10 GPI.
0: Well, I really appreciate you joining us today. The best of luck with completing your hat trick in 2019. Chrissy Bicknell, thank you so much for joining us on the Chip Race today. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Well three years ago this week the world lost a music icon a man who affected the lives of many including that of my co-host who paid tribute to his friend in the form of what is his most read blog a story that was since published in the collection My Bowie Story. Playing us out this week from the 1975 album Young Americans this is David Bowie and Wynn.
4: like you should not be
0: again to Jared, David, Dara, Diva and Chrissy. Next week we'll be joined by another of the game's best players, Bryn Kenny. We will also sit down with Lithuanian pro and coach Marfeldas Arvidas. Until then from Darren and myself, good night and good luck.